Before we start the show, just a reminder, we talk about sexual harassment in this episode. If this raises any concerns for you, give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. Or you can call the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre on 1800 424 071. We understand that it's really difficult. This is Karen Willis, the Executive Officer of the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre. But the overall message is it's never your fault. You've never done anything to ask for or deserve. And the responsibility for this behaviour is absolutely always with the offender and the system that supports the offender in those behaviours. And that's where the problem is and that's what we've got to change. All right, now for the show. Hello, my name's Verity Firth. I'm the Executive Director of Social Justice at the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. And you're listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. In this episode, we will be talking about consent, about how our culture romanticises persistent men pursuing reluctant women and how this informs our idea of consent. Also, in the face of this cultural dominance, how do we educate around issues of consent? Our producer, Ollie Henderson, has been talking to women about consent. What did you find most interesting? How, you know, our consent can be violated so easily and in in many circumstances in our lives. I think when we think about consent, we usually think about sex. But there are so many small everyday moments where our consent can be violated I spoke to this woman called Olivia who had a really interesting story. Let's take a listen. Let's do it. So I have quite a promiscuous Instagram, I guess. This is Olivia. She's a third-year university student at the University of Technology, Sydney. But you can find her on social media. My Instagram is at byitn. Olivia is sharing with us the photos that she shares with all of her Instagram followers. Instagram is a way of an expression. It's a social media, but it's a way to express yourself. It's very arty these days. And my Instagram pictures are often quite out there because they're how the pictures I want to put up, the pictures I think are great or are beautiful, and I, I want to show those and share those to the world. So in this photo, I don't have a top on, but it cuts off just below the armpits, I guess. I have makeup on, I have jewellery on. I'm just looking at the camera. Also, I've got to say that I do have the, the lip pose where you're in a kind of pout, but there's a gap between your lips, which is commonly known as blowjob lips, which is just a space of your lips like it's not even a thing it's got nothing to do with a guy's penis see even now I'm hesitant to, to describe this photo because people will say well you asked for it you put that photo up that means you asked for these people to message you you're attention seeking but Olivia is in no way asking for it no it's it's for me This, however, does not stop the messages from appearing, day after day, in Olivia's inbox. Every time she posts a photo. If those, you know, show any type of boobs or butt or anything like that, it's seen as a sign 
uh, open for business sign, you know, if this girl puts up a picture of herself in a bikini, then she obviously wants you, the random boy scrolling through her feed, to message her being like, oh, like, we should go for a drink. If they put something stupid in the comments, I delete the comments. It's all in my inbox. Okay, so... So this one, for example, from the username trollface underscore sg says, let's have fun, smiley face. I did get one, I don't have it at the moment, but it said something along the lines of, oh, you're bi, you like multiple cocks, do you want to get into some multiple cock activities? I don't know, I really don't know. And even though Olivia's Instagram is on private, her photos still don't avoid the male gaze. The men in Olivia's inbox, they don't see her photos as empowering. They view them as attention-seeking. They view them as an invitation. To message, to stalk, to harass. They view them as consent. Consent to sexualize and objectify. Women in bikinis on Instagram are easy targets. Definitely, people send you really hyper-sexualized messages and they're in a different country, so that's obviously... I guess they kind of maybe get a kick off trying to humiliate you, trying to switch it from you being empowered by your sexuality to you being degraded by your own sexuality. They're saying, no, this is something for you to be ashamed of. Being solicited and slut-shamed doesn't just happen on the internet. For every comment that's on Olivia's Instagram... And for every unsolicited message in her inbox. There are so many small moments that you just have to smile and bear. There's an equal, if not greater, real-life interaction. It ties into entitlement, I think. And despite the Me Too movement generating a much-needed discussion about inappropriate sexual behaviour and what constitutes consent in any sexual encounter, this entitlement is pervasive in our culture It defines how women are perceived on Instagram, on the street, and in the workplace. It defines how all people come to view consent. I have never, ever reported any sexual assault or harassment, ever. Because I guess I'm worried about how they will interpret the situation. And if they decide that that was not sexual harassment and they define it not that way, they define it as you know, just flirting or anything. And that's really, really tough. That's really damaging for me to be completely invalidated, even though my emotions are screaming, that's not okay. That's not how I deserve to be treated. Having this conversation with Olivia and having conversations like these over the past few months, conversations for this series and in my everyday life, on and off the record... Everyone seems to be talking about the same thing. And the C word is always present. The way we talk about it, the way we define it, the way we communicate consent needs to change. And change is a long time coming. 
Today's episode is in two parts. Coming up later in the show, predatory romance. And while men might understand the meaning of yes, they sometimes don't understand the word no. You do have to look at the power dynamic and say, well, why are those actions being disregarded? But first, part one, how we learn consent and who teaches us. There's this kind of idea that persistence um, involves systematically ignoring all the signals and cues emitted by the other person because they're less important than what you want. So, for example, at my 16th birthday, there was a boy that was flirting with me and I wasn't really into him or anything. I guess I was polite back. Like I, didn't, I didn't flirt back. I didn't give those cues that said, yeah, let's do this, like, I'm into it. But that didn't stop him. He kept flirting with me so persistently, even when I would literally, like, walk away. He'd go to that new spot, find me, and start flirting with me again. And in the end... At her own 16th birthday party... He managed to get me around the side of my own house and he was so persistent. He said, just kiss me just once, just once, just one kiss. Like, that's all I'm asking. And gaslighting me and making me feel like if I didn't kiss him, then I was a big bitch and I was being so rude. Until finally. I literally just kissed him so that he would go away. So I could get get rid of him, you know, that he would get off my back, you know. And I feel like me being ignored all those times is not okay at all. I was clearly not consenting. And this persistence, this harassment, it comes from the same sense of entitlement that the men who find their way into our DMs feel. He believed he was entitled to a kiss more than I was entitled to, you know, my right to consent, which is so heavy. I don't know, getting whatever he wanted out of that one kiss was more important than my well-being. Consent is something we all need to work on. We need to actively work and learn and educate and talk and discuss about because it's very simple in theory, but it is complicated in practice. If we're all taught about consent from an early age, this would be so, the whole situation would be so much better. Yeah, I'm really interested in school education for young people. That's one of my real passions. But obviously I'm not a school teacher. I'm a tertiary educator. So I try and collaborate, talk to, meet with people I know in the education sector on a fairly regular basis to see how they teach and what it is they're teaching our young people. This is Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, Melissa Kang. But you might know her from her 23 years of dishing out health advice under a different name, Dolly Doctor. I spoke to my colleagues in education about what is actually taught. I mean, I'm familiar with the national curriculum. I actually had a little bit of involvement in it many years ago when they were first drafting it. I also had a little bit uh, of a look at the New South Wales syllabus, which is an adaptation of that. Let's just say she knows what she's talking about. Did I mention she is Dolly Doctor? So I had a closer look at consent and what's actually taught. How does the actual syllabus and the curriculum allow for 
students to learn about consent in the context of peer sexual relationships? I think that's where the Me Too movement gives us the signposts. Teachers are interested in, okay, how can we exploit this and and become, in fact, part of the movement at a greater level. So now it goes right back from the word go in kindergarten. So children, when they first enter formal education, are already learning three main areas of consent. One is about the body. So the fact that their body belongs to them, learning about what's private when it comes to parts of your body that you expose. Um, So they learn that really young. The second is about knowing your feelings. So understanding when you feel scared, when you feel happy, when you feel angry. So those kinds of things, emotional intelligence, I call it. So learning about that from a young age. And the third is around communication. Communication and assertiveness. So they are learning, starting to learn some of those skills at a very young age. But this curriculum doesn't get to the gender politics, the power hierarchies that shape our current definitions of consent. Melissa says that comes in later. Yeah, look, I think obviously when you're in kindergarten, you're not learning about gender politics or power and gender and patriarchy. It's just about getting children and then young people to recognise, I guess, the, the greater forces in society that influence our ideas around consent and relationships and bodies and those kinds of things. And this is the hard part. Melissa says addressing and teaching students about the patriarchy is a little more difficult than teaching kids about keeping their hands to themselves. Now, I think that's where it gets tricky for some, for, for teachers in terms of the resources they have, the confidence they feel. Even the teachers who want to be a part of the movement and educate young people about consent, often face an uphill battle. And the fact that it starts to become a bit politicised. Teaching sexual education in schools has always been a political issue. Melissa says when she was growing up, her health teachers preached abstinence only. Gosh, when I was at high school, it was post-sexual revolution, but it was still pretty conservative. But over time, teaching methods changed with the culture. And Melissa is hopeful. In the middle of Me Too, our changing culture will also help change teaching methods. I think that our teachers, and I'm not just talking about health teachers, I think English teachers especially and and humanities teachers who are interested in gender studies and gender politics and politics in general and, you know, philosophy and all those kinds of things and ethics, I think that there's a lot of rich material in the Me Too movement. And teachers, I mean, their skill, their, their art is to use contemporary conversations that will shift the culture eventually, and it needs to start really young. So here's the thing. It works. Melissa says there's ample research out there that demonstrates how sexual education produces better health outcomes for everyone. Comprehensive sexuality education does have a positive impact on those health outcomes. And if we do start teaching consent as early as kindergarten... We might see a change in how society understands consent in sexual relationships. It does work, but it needs to be age-appropriate, needs to be introduced at a very young age. It's about being multifaceted and ongoing. And because she knows it does work, 
Melissa sees this moment as an opportunity. One of the biggest and most important reasons behind the Me Too movement is not just addressing the interpersonal. Teaching young people to communicate and understand consent is one thing. But Me Too is about more than that. It's about addressing the institutionalised and systemic reasons for sexual harassment and assault that exist in our everyday lives. Melissa believes that school teachers are on board with the revolution. They want to be a part of it. And she thinks that they can change the institutions from the inside. And I think to me that's what revolutions are about. If we think of Me Too as a revolution, I think, and we look at other historic revolutions, it, it often comes from the, the masses kind of rebelling against the system. And I, I see it in a similar way. So I see formal school education, obviously, as an institution. It's a social institution and the movement can take place within that as well. I'm Verity Firth. I'm Ollie Henderson. And this is After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. Coming up, if not in schools, where do we learn consent? wanted to speak about a time where I went recently, very recently, like two months ago, I went on a tour and one of the assistants to the tour guide, I guess, was very friendly to me. This is Olivia Stanley again. We heard from her earlier. She's a third-year university student. And social convention says, I smile, I'm polite back, I'm friendly back, because it's incredibly rude to, you know turn the cold shoulder to someone that's doing that to you. So, Olivia was nice back. She smiled at him when he smiled at her. She accepted his compliments and laughed at his jokes. So, you know, I humoured him, like, I let him say nice things and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. On the last day of the trip, the tour guide gave Olivia a friendship bracelet. And out of friendship, Olivia gave him a gift back. A fridge magnet she found at a local shop. And at the end of the tour... He showed me downstairs to the bottom area and he told me he loved me and he tried to kiss me by physically putting his arms around me and pulling me as close as possible. And I was physically restraining him. I had my hands against his chest. I had my, I had my neck far away like twisting around so it was not near his face and I was saying no, no, no and he kept trying to kiss me. Eventually I pushed him off and I walked upstairs to where my father was and this is probably the bit that hurt the most because I said, Dad, he just really tried to kiss me and I don't want that and my dad said, well, you gave him a fridge magnet and that (laughs) that was really frustrating. I gave him a fridge magnet because it was a gift 
like it was just a throwaway kind of nice thing to do because he gave me a friendship bracelet. And I had to return the gift at social convention. But that was a, the fact that in my father's mind, a fridge magnet represented, okay, you can make unlimited sexual advances on me and I won't say no, is completely absurd. It's not that he was a predator, it's that he'd grown up in this culture where persistence was the key to making a girl like you. In loads of cultural things like films, music, books, all that. Persistence is represented as the key to success. There are so many really problematic moments in movies where the woman says no and the guy says yes and they end up, you know, having a relationship or engaging in sexual activity. And I feel like that sends a really, really horrible message to young boys. And I feel like young girls are the ones who lose out there because they are the ones that experience that, you know, all the way from primary school to high school to university. Well, it's true that we learn how to be not just adults, but people in our culture, through popular culture. You know, TV, radio, online. This is Liz Jeffrey. She's a senior lecturer in communications at the University of Technology, Sydney. I've got a few different things that I research, but I'm really interested in popular culture and its effect on us as audiences. And Liz isn't the only one who joined us in the studio. <laughs> Liz's newborn son came along. I'm just having to feed her, but that will, that will do it. And despite being in this world for only a few short months, Liz says the culture around us is having an effect on him already. It's what we absorb every day, and it's what, you know, my little one's already absorbing, you know. It's just you, you kind of can't avoid it. So we learn how to be in relationships with, with each other through popular culture as well, and that means that, you know, we tend to uh, mimic that behaviour, and we've all done it. Liz says that this dominant culture is perpetuating a myth about romance, one that involves pursuit, not consent. Well, I mean, the big classic one uh, is the boy meets girl, uh, he likes the girl, he courts the girl, she says no, he persists, she keeps saying no, he persists until finally he wears her down. Generally, hopefully all that means is having a coffee, having something to eat. Then she realises, oh, actually this guy's awesome and how wrong I was and they walk off into the sunset happily ever after. In our culture, this narrative is perceived as romantic. It's a story to remember and retell over and over with fondness. But it's not romantic. It's just another example of how popular culture condones and redeems violent behaviour. It also sends the story to him that even if a woman does say no, well, she probably just means, yes, she just needs a bit more work put into her, you know. So that's really problematic because what if a woman actually does mean no? What if she's actually not that interested, you know? First of all, this poor guy's wasting his time. But worse than that, of course, is then what do we do if he pursues her against her will, you know? And not it's not just, quote-unquote, wearing her, wearing her down socially. It's if it becomes physical. That's where that dominance kind of takes over. But this dominance doesn't just exist in popular culture. It's embedded in the patriarchal and dominant culture of our society that's continually represented on our screens. And the power dynamics that exist in our society move from the screen back into our everyday lives. 
you do have to look at the power dynamic and say, well, why are those actions being disregarded? You know, why are they being overridden? At best, they're being overridden. At worst, they're being disrespected and then violated, you know, and we've got to kind of consider why is that and why do we allow that to happen? The perspective I'm coming at is an angry one because I'm so frustrated about all the times in my life where I've been harassed or assaulted or treated differently because of how I look. All the things that have affected me since I was one just make me really, really angry that I have to go through this and that my experiences are not represented in TV, not really cared about by most people and invalidated most of the time. And I guess if I wasn't angry, I'd cry. And if I cried every time, I wouldn't be here. You know, you kind of have to choose how you respond. Hello, it's Verity Firth again. We're back in the studio with Ollie Henderson, our producer. Hi, Verity. Hi, Ollie. So the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion has been rolling out programs at UTS to teach staff and students about consent. Did anything that Dr. Melissa Kang say really resonate with you as an educator? Absolutely, it did. Um, What resonated most with me was that we need to start early and that we need to have more complex conversations in age-appropriate ways early in our education system. That particularly resonated to me because there's so much that happens before students get to university and it's often hard to unravel behaviours that are already adopted or, or cultural beliefs that have already been ingrained in a young person. But what I found most interesting about what uh, Melissa was saying was that even now in the 21st century, sex education in high school is still primarily concerned with the mechanics of sex versus the politics of sex. You know, it's almost as if adults are more relaxed to talk about what goes where than they are to talk about the inherent messy, you know, complex awkward moments that are adult sexual relationships. And I think that's a real problem. I think we do need to grapple with that, especially for teenagers. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the big things that's missing in teenage sexual education is relationships. The relationship is fundamentally what it's about and how we interact with each other. That's exactly right. And if you don't address these tricky issues in a school environment where it's safe and hopefully well taught, then students are still going to seek it out. And the problem we've got nowadays is they'll probably seek it out through online porn or something that is quite problematic when it comes to descriptions of power relations. Yeah, definitely. Especially like there is a lot of good porn out there, but if you're a first time going to have a look at porn, you're definitely going to run into the mainstream porn. And you know, I, I think that mainstream porn can often be really problematic It in the power relationships that it promotes between men and women. The women are often the subjugated to the men. Yep. And in fact, it's sort of like the porn equivalent of the romantic ideal. You know, persistent man, reluctant female, dominating man, submissive female. Absolutely. Um, and... You see it play out everywhere. I mean, I I connect. I don't think you can have a conversation about consent without properly addressing power dynamics. I mean, I think the story that Olivia told about the young man just pursuing her at that party and not taking no for an answer to the point where it was just like, oh, you know, I'll just give him what he wants 
you know, his desire was, was greater, his need was greater than her need. I just thought as soon as you use any other analogy, it just makes no sense at all. If that boy was pursuing another boy at the party and insisting that he play football, you know, racing around the party after him saying, look, I've got the ball. I mean, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to play football with me? I mean, you used to want to play football with me. I mean... That would just be such bizarre behaviour. It would be so socially condemned. And yet he can pursue this girl around the party when she persistently says no, and that's not even unusual. And that is a problem, and that is about power, and that is about culture. Yeah, it's even normalised, I would say. So do you think that we will ever be able to really solve these big issues of consent if we don't solve the issue of the power dynamic that exists between men and women first? No, I don't think we will. But on a positive note, I think all social change takes time. You know, it's often one step forward and two steps backward. You just keep fighting and working for change. And I do think things are getting better and I think we have to keep plugging away at it. Um, And in the meantime, do whatever we can to mitigate some of the some of what goes on because of this power dynamic and because of this strangely screwed up culture we have where men persist and women are reluctant. Yeah, that's it. Well, I look forward to the future. I do too. (laughs) Can't get here soon enough. Yeah. This episode was a collaboration between the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. Our producers are Nina Kopel, Miles Herbert and Ollie Henderson. And a big thanks to Laurel Oxley from the Centre. If you liked the show, show us some love on 2SER.com or if you are listening to us via your favourite podcast app, subscribe and leave us a review. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation.